Romans chapter 8. We're going to put the pedal to the metal. And we're going to go through verse 31 to 39. Lord willing. That's our goal. Q&A, Romans chapter 8. What has happened here in Romans chapter 8, we've just talked about, Paul's presented to us, we've been justified, we've been called, uh, we've been uh, uh, glorified. Uh, these things are predestined, justified, uh, called, and glorified. These, these things have happened. What he wants us to see, he's anticipating some questions, and he's going to, there's, in this passage, there's several questions, but I'm only going to address, address five main questions. And then he also gives the answer to them. Uh, the privileges that come along with salvation that we need to understand and embrace the fact is salvation isn't just the end, it's the beginning. And some of the privileges that come along with that is what he's going to explain to us in chapter 31 and 39. In 1830 or 1898, there was a teenager by the name of Peter Deneka. And I'm not sure I pronounced it correctly, but it's D-Y-N-E-K-A. He sailed away from his home country of Russia. He was bound for Nova Scotia. For him, it was literally the other side of the world. He would eventually become an evangelist, greatly used by God, in the new world. But God was about to teach him an unforgettable lesson on this trip. His family had saved for months in order to purchase their tickets to their future, Peter's mother had packed enough food for the long journey, mostly bread and garlic. They could not afford very much. Every day, Peter would look longingly through the windows of the ship's dining room as the wealthy patrons enjoyed their extravagant meals. On and oh, how he envied them. As he returned to his little room and, little room and ate his black bread and garlic, about halfway through the voyage, some of the sailors noticed his predicament and promised him that if he would take their, ch their chores and do their work in the kitchen, they would give him meals in return. Peter was delighted and began to work very hard. He was given meals in the back of the kitchen as promised. It was not until the very last day of the voyage that Peter discovered the truth. Three meals a day in the ship's dining room was included in the price of the ticket. We've got... As a euphemism, we have a ticket to heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, there's some incredible privileges that come our way. The Apostle Paul, in these verses, is going to be describing to us what those privileges are. The extraordinary continuing benefits, privileges, of being eternally secure in Christ. It's not the end it's the beginning. First question. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? And uh, that's not the first question. That's part of verse 34. But the point of that is, there's nothing we can say to these things. They have already been taken care of. And there's nothing that we can add to them. But he continues, he says, what, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? That's the first question. This is, this is humorous, to me at least. That was the verse my mother put above my bed when I was growing up. It meant absolutely nothing to me. Other than the fact, I guess, 
I was okay, I was safe. Maybe that was what it was supposed to be. There were so many other things the Lord used to bring me to a point of salvation. But I do remember that was the verse she had above my bed. If, if God be for us. When Paul says if God is for us, he's not saying maybe he is or maybe he isn't, but rather the Greek it is better translated since God is for us or because God is for us. Listen, since God is for us, who can be against us? Who opposes us? God protects us. Paul is stating here the facts. This is a truth, established truth for us. No one can stand against God, therefore no one can stand against us. Psalm 118 verse 6 says, this is a song of thanksgiving by David for protection. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 7 and 8, as God was putting his hand upon Jeremiah and his call upon him, and he promised him, he said, But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you, and where, whatever I command you, you shall speak. Verse 8, Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Who's going who's to bring anything against you? No one. God protects let me just give you three examples of our enemies that they can't stand us against us. First of all, there's the world. John 16, verse 33 says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be a good cheer. Let's go out and celebrate. I have overcome the world. The world with its philosophy and thinking, its four major objectives have been listed as fortune, fame, power, and pleasure. It cannot stand against you. Fortune, of course, is often related to money. The world system is driven by money. It feeds on materialism. Does it not? Hasn't it permeated our, hasn't it permeated our culture? Hasn't it permeated, permeated, I can't speak, permeated your thinking? That's the world's influence, fortune. Or fame, another word for popularity. Fame is the longing to be known, to be somebody in someone else's eyes. Power, that is having influence, that is maintaining control over individuals or groups or companies or whatever. It's the desire to manipulate and maneuver, maneuver others to do something for one's own benefit. In other words, when we think of fame and power, it's all about me. It can't stand against you. Who will bring a charge to God's elect? What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And of course, there's pleasure. And as basic level pleasure has to do with fulfilling one's sensual desires. It's the same mindset that's behind the slogan, if it feels good, just do it. God is for us. Who can stand against us? There's the world. There's the flesh. Romans 8, verse 3 and 5, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. He said, for what the law could not do, that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. 
on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. <laughs> that righteousness requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who did not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's already been defeated. W.G. Scroggy detected ten shades of meaning used in the Bible. In nine of them, there is no ethical or theological content in reference to flesh. But the tenth, which is the one Paul mainly employs, the flesh may be defined as man's fallen nature as under the power of sin. It is the evil principle in man's nature, the traitor within who is in league with the attackers without. The flesh provides the tinder on which the devil's temptations are kindled. And it's been defeated. We know all these things are true, but it's been defeated. And then there's the devil, the evil one. He's been defeated. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Since God has delivered you, there isn't anyone who can destroy you. Think of it this way. As it says in there in 1 John, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world, speaking of the evil one. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they've been defeated. Who, who then shall say to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one can. It doesn't mean that you won't be faced with these things. It doesn't mean you won't be tempted to these things. It doesn't mean you may, not even, you may even give in to these things. But you're giving in to them in yourself because they've already been defeated. Second question. Found in verse 32. Who withholds from us, God provides for us. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Folks, this is not complicated. This isn't rocket science. You can sit in your living room and read through these scriptures and discover their meaning. The gift of God's Son is the promise and pledge that he not only protects us in verse 31, but he also provides for us in verse 32. The emphasis is that the Father who freely gave us his Son to die on the cross for our sins will freely provide for his people's need. Not demands, not wants, but he'll provide our needs as we need them in his time. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? This isn't a wealth and health philosophy. This is not dreaming of God, put him in our little box, and now he's under our control, and we'll put a hole in the box so he can breathe once in a while. He will meet our needs as he sees fit, but he will meet our needs. And if you notice, this arrangement is from the greater to the lesser. Since God did not hesitate to give us his greatest gift, he will not hesitate to give us lesser gifts. I came across this illustration. It would be like the father who built his son a full-length indoor basketball court and then refused to give him a basketball to use. He wouldn't do that. 
2 Peter 1.3, the source of the believer's sufficiency and perseverance is from above. 2 Peter 1.3 says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by, the, by glory and virtue. Since God has freely given you his son, there isn't any need he won't meet for you. This is the, listen, this is the benefits of salvation. This is the benefits of being justified, of being called, of being glorified. This is what he's done for us. The third question. Who accuses us? God purifies us. Verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Remember, this is a legal term, justification, just as if you've never sinned. When he looks upon us, he doesn't see our sinfulness. He sees us clothed with the righteousness of Christ. He purifies Job 1, we know or we learn that Satan has the ability to accuse a believer before God. Whether those accusations are true or imagined, he wants to accuse us. He is the accuser. More often than not, he doesn't manufacture those accusations. You see, our words reveal our heart and our actions reveal our lust, our pride, and our rebellion. You, you know what I'm saying is true. Your words reveal your heart, for out of the bones of the heart the mouth speaks. And your actions demonstrate what you really believe. And those actions many, some demonstrate, many times demonstrate your lust, your pride, and your rebellion. And even though Satan knows he can't do anything about your salvation, he wants to accuse you for God to destroy your testimony if nothing else and thereby not have influence at all. I found this illustration of a false accusation, which he is the false accuser. John was driving home late one night when he picked up a hitchhiker. As they rode along, he began to be suspicious of his passenger. John checked to see if his wallet was safe in the pocket of his coat that was on the seat between them. It wasn't there. So he slammed on the brakes, ordered the hitchhiker out, and said, hand over the wallet immediately. The frightened hitchhiker handed over a, a billfold and John drove off. When he arrived home, he started to tell his wife about the experience, but she interrupted him and said, Before I forget, John, do you know that you left your wallet at home this morning? Now, it's a little bit of a humorous, but the point is, those are, that's a false accusation. There, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who can call us into court? Because it is God who justifies. He's the one who declares us righteous. If God, who imputes to our bankrupt sinners the righteousness of Christ, who's going to take it away? Since our salvation is an act of God, there in verse 29 and 30, we are eternally secure. Even as 1 John 1, 7 says, the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sins. I believe that Paul's point here in verse 33 is it doesn't matter who brings a charge against God's elect. 
none of the charges will stick. We have fully, we have been fully pardoned. Since God has acquitted you, there isn't anyone who can indict you. Fourth question. Verse 34. Who condemns us? Jesus prays for us. Verse 34, this is a great verse. Who is he who condemns us? It is Christ, listen, who died and furthermore is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who's going to condemn us? Look what he's done for us. He's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. There is, by the way, two different potential ways of saying the same thing in reference to this verse. First of all, the one who has authority to condemn you, which is Jesus, right? Died for you. (laughs) Or it could be interpreted this way. The one with the right to eternally denounce and demiss you from his presence has delivered you. He's died for you and he's delivered you. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. Risen. Seated. And praying. Those four facts, those four proofs that reveal the finality of the believer's deliverance in this verse, that you are eternally secure. First of all, Jesus Christ died. Philippians 2.8 Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus Christ arose. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ is not raised, then our preaching is empty and our faith is also empty. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. We are a shadow in the wind. We are just hot air without the resurrection. Also, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God, seated. Paul explains in other letters, he's at the right hand of God, he sat down. Ephesians 2, 6 says, And he raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Also Colossians 1, 3, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. This concept doesn't necessarily mean anything to us in the 21st century, but his Jewish readers immediately knew the significance of of those words regarding Jesus' physical arrangement. This doesn't mean that Christ never stands up, but to say that Christ was seated was not some trivial detail either. What did every Jewish reader understand? In the temple, there's no chairs. In the Old Testament, when the tabernacle, both the Holy of Holies and in the holy place, there was no place to sit down. Why? because the work of the priest was never finished. They stood, they moved, they worked, they labored, sacrificed over over and over again before the presence of an unsatisfied holy God. However, when Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and rose again, his work has been finished. His redemptive work has satisfied the holiness of God. And that's why Christ is seated. So listen to the verse. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, 
and he's seated. It's finished. You think of one of his last sayings on the cross as he hung there before he gave up the ghost. He said what? It is done. It is finished. It is ended. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. It's done. The fourth fact we find there, Jesus Christ intercedes for us. Why? Do you remember as we went over that in the previous time, talking about the intercession of the Holy Spirit? Why does he intercede for us? Because we don't know how to pray. How do you pray for Ralph Kendall? We don't know how to pray. How do we pray for those pastors in the Amazon? We can mention them, we can attempt it, but how do you pray? How do you really pray for them? How do you know how to pray for them? He divinely intercedes for us. We have the Holy Spirit praying for us in our hearts, and we have Jesus Christ praying in heaven for us, divinely interceding. Since Christ redeemed you, there isn't anyone who can condemn you. Which brings us to the fifth question. And you may be sitting there saying, that was really fast, Pastor Ken, you're going to be done here in five minutes. The fifth question is the longest question. I came in Saturday thinking, you know, about two hours I'll get this done. It took me about five because there was more there than I wanted to tackle. I did the best I could. Don't miss it. The fifth question, who separates us? Who separates us from the love of God? Who would dare attempt to separate us from the love of God? Jesus preserves us. A five-year-old Johnny was in the kitchen as his mother made supper. She asked him to go into the pantry and get her a can of tomato soup, but he didn't want to go in alone. It's dark in there, and I'm scared. She asked again, and he gave her the same answer. She smiled and said, it's okay. Jesus will be, with, be in there with you. Johnny walked back hesitantly to the door and slowly opened it. He peeked inside, saw that it was dark, and started to leave. And then an idea came to him, and he asked this question. Jesus, if you're in there, would you please hand me a can of tomato soup? <laughs> We're actually more like Johnny than not, aren't we? The dark scares us. The unknown makes us afraid. Verse 35 to 37. I'm going to tackle those three first. Circumstances before death cannot separate us from the love of God. Who shall separate us? That is to place a wedge between. The word is also a synonym for amputate. Who shall amputate us from the love of Christ? Who shall cut us off? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to the slaughter. Yet, yet, more very much like the word but, don't you love when God butts in? It says, yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. That is, without any threat to personal life, five words to translate this one Greek word, not just cope, exist, but super overcomers. 
We're superheroes. Each one of us, every one of us, we're super overcomers. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Tribulation. What may be crushing you right now? What kind of pressure are you under you almost cannot bear it? This is a word that refers to a heavy sled that was dragged over stalks of wheat to separate the heads of grain from the chaff. It's a word that refers to life crushing you. You might think, say things such as, I feel like a truck has run over me. Or my spirit has just been crushed by the blows of life. Shall that separate you from the love of God? The answer is no. Will you feel like it? Probably. But the answer is still no. Distress. It's a compound word that means narrow space, confined, pressure, boxed in. You knock off the first two letters and what do you have? Stress. Will that separate you from the love of God? No. Persecution. It means to be rejected, ridiculed, mocked, abandoned, mistreated because of your faith. Often by friends and family. Famine and nakedness. Combine those two together. Literally having no food to eat and nothing to wear. Literally. These two words are virtually unheard of in the American church, famine and nakedness, but believers around the world suffer from them all the time, every day. And yet, it cannot separate you from the love of God. Peril. These words mean danger. You and I may not fear physical persecution or danger because of our faith, but our danger is real nonetheless. Second Peter or First Peter chapter five verse eight: Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks along like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He looks at you and he looks at me and he says, "Fresh meat." But that will not separate us from the love of God. The sword. Paul has already experienced the previous seven. He had not pre- he had not experienced the sword but only a few months after he completes this epistle. He will die. He will be beheaded by Emperor Nero, the sword. Those are circumstances before death. Then in verse 38 and 39, circumstances after death. For I am persuaded. This is a great word, by the way. I am convinced. I, will, I, am, I have a conviction. I will die on this conviction. I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Death nor life. William Barclay writes, Neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God. In life we live with Christ. In death we die in Christ. And because we die in him, we also shall rise with him. Death is far from being a separation, an amputation. It's only a stepping stone to be with him 
forever. Angels nor principalities. This is demonic as well as good angels. Why did Paul address good and fallen angels? I believe the people of Paul's day had errantly developed extensive beliefs in angels that had nothing to do with Scripture, but everything to do with their own imaginations, superstitions, and fears. In fact, in Paul's day, the rabbis taught that everything had an angel. The rabbis were teaching that there were angels of the winds, of the clouds, of the snow and hail, of the thunder and of the lightning, of the cold and the heat. In fact, they led people to believe that there was nothing in the world, not even a blade of grass that did not have an angel associated to attach it. Angels nor personal Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not our imaginations. Not our superstitions. The word powers or dunamis in the Greek is the same word used in Acts 8.10 concerning Simon the sorcerer. This magician, this sorcerer, was said to have supernatural power or dunamis. Paul's point is not only does the demonic world not have power to separate the believer from Christ, demonically motivated, energized men and women, as well as doctrines of demons, do not have the power to separate the believer from Christ. Pastor Ken, you actually believe there's demons? You believe there's actually evil uh, things in the world, that these are fallen angels? Absolutely. I believe they're real, but I want to tell you something. They cannot separate you from the love of God. They cannot somehow curse a believer, cast a spell on the believer, cause a believer to suffer some bewitchment, some sorcery, some evil eye, so that they fall from the love of God and Christ. The bottom line, there is no need to fear Friday the 13th, seeing a black cat walk across your path, breaking a mirror, Walking under a ladder, you can spill salt at the table, put an umbrella up, open an umbrella indoors, plan your wedding for the 13th, buy a black cat that crosses your path all day long. Go ahead. These things have no power over or in the life of a child of God. They cannot separate us from his love. Things present nor things to come. In other words, there is nothing to the present or in the future for you that will erase your secure position as God's beloved child. Not only are we in the hands of Christ, but God's hands coming around the hands of Christ, we are double secure. We are double wrapped. We are protected. We are secure. Interesting words, nor height nor depth. The Greek words, hupsoma, height. And bathos, depth, doesn't mean anything to us. In fact, it almost seems neutral. But in that day in Rome, these are astrological terms. Height was a word that referred to the time when a star was at its zenith and its influence considered to be at its greatest point. Depth was a word that referred to the time when the star was at its lowest, waiting, as it were, to rise and cast its influence on those born under it. Let me give this illustration. In casting a horoscope, the zenith or height of a person's star and the depth of a person's star or the configuration of planets and stars when you were born somehow cast power or influence over the things they will encounter 
and determines the way they should live and the decisions you make. More than 12 million Americans changed their behavior or plans in the basis of an astrology report this year. Former presidents, heads of states, have determined their travel schedules and political maneuvers by the stars. Paul is saying, in effect, any believer who may be haunted by past experience or present doubts, the stars cannot hurt you. Don't waste your time. They have no influence over you. That's a lie. They don't govern your lives. They don't determine your destiny. The power of one true and living God who created the stars rules as sovereign in the universe. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And then he finally ends the verse, every or any created thing. Since God created everything that is, there's nothing that exists that could possibly separate us from the love of God, just in case he forgot everything, anything. Nothing. Since Christ loves you, there isn't anything that can separate you. Nothing can separate you from love. You may feel separated. There may be sin in your life. Truly, there's a barrier there. But your eternal security is exactly what is called eternal security. It's absolutely secure. Let me close with this illustration. This is in, found in a book, Nelson's Complete Book of Stories, Illustrations, and Quotes, by, written by a man by the name of Robert Morgan. This is what he said. A man in Dundee, Scotland, had been confined to a bed for 40 years, having broken his neck in a fall at age 15. His spirit has remained unbroken. His cheer and courage so inspire people that the, he enjoys a constant stream of guests, many of them coming to him for encouragement. One day a visitor asked him, doesn't Satan ever tempt you to doubt God? Does he ever tempt you to doubt God? Yes, he does try to tempt me. I lie here and see my old schoolmates driving along and Satan whispers, if God's so good, why does he keep you here all these years? Why did he permit you to break your neck? The guest asked him, what do you do when you have those thoughts whispered in your head? Ah, replied the invalid. I take him to Calvary. I show him Christ. Point to his wounds and say, You see, he does love me. He loves me indeed. Satan never has an answer to that. But he doesn't stop trying. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. If you've, put, if you've repented and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are one of the benefits and blessings of salvation is that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's all stand. Let's close in prayer this morning. Father, Thank you for the facts. Thank you for the concern and desire of Paul and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Not just to challenge us, but to relate to us the truth. Oh God, I pray we will live Christ. Because we've already trusted in Christ. Knowing that even today or tomorrow or the next day, just as you've done in the past, you'll do in the future. There's absolutely nothing 
that can separate us from the love of God. Guide us as we go forth from the service this morning, glorifying and praising your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.